Welcome to Brandon Avat. I'm Mark Oppenheimer and I'm joined by Jason Werbelov. Jason, I gather you have an excellent thought experiment for us tonight. Yeah, so, um, you know, I didn't even have to twist Mark's leg to do this thought experiment with you guys. Um, Mark suggested it. And I mean, it makes me very happy because I'm a Trekkie. So, okay, so here's the thought experiment. So it's season two of Star Trek Voyager. I can't remember which episode. I think it might be episode nine or 13. Or Anyway, it's season two. Um, and um, there are these two characters, uh, Tuvok and Neelix. So Tuvok um, is a Vulcan and he is ultra rational. And he, um, you know, he displays as little emotion as possible because that's what, what, um, what, you know, what his character does. All right. And then you've got Neelix, who is the opposite. He's ebullient and he's highly emotional and he, he's the ship's chef and he's everyone's friend. And he's always, he's the, he, I think he, his official uh, title is the morale officer on the ship. So, he, you know, he's, he's, all, he's all about the morale. Anyway, so the two of them go down to this planet on an away mission, as they do in Star Trek, and they're busy picking all this different uh, flora, um, and they pick this particular type of orchid, and they put it in their sacks, and they, they tell the, 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 the transporter, for anyone who hasn't watched Star Trek, um, on Star Trek there are transporters, okay? So the way it works is that all your atoms are, are, are converted into energy, into light, and then you are reconstructed on the ship. So they transport them from the, they tele, is it teleporting or transporting, Mark? I think it's trans, uh, te, it's transporting, teleporting. Anyway, teleport, they teleport them from the, the, the planet back onto the ship, except there's a problem, right? And it's amazing, you know, uh, there's more problems with teleporters than not. But anyway, there's a problem. And the problem is that the two of them don't appear on the, the teleporter pad on the ship. Instead, what happens is that one person appears and this person is an amalgam of Tuvok and Neelix, and he calls himself Tuvix. And Tuvix has all the qualities of both. He kind of has the best qualities of both. So he's got the rationality of Tuvok, the Vulcan, and he's got this ebullient uh, emotional range of, of, uh, of Neelix. So he calls himself Tuvix. And uh, Tuvix is kind of a force of his own. He has all the cooking skills of, of Neelix and all the security and, and rational skills of Tuvok. And he kind of moves around the ship and they, they, they try to investigate different ways to separate him into the two, but they can't do it. They, they don't have the technology. They, the tech's not working. So he kind of, you know, walks around the ship and, and he like, he has his own job. He kind of falls in for both of them. So he has a security job of Tuvok and he also has the cooking job of Neelix and he's a really cool guy and all the characters kind of start to interact with him. He forms his own relationships with characters. You know, the, the, the previous spouses and girlfriends and, of, of the original characters miss the originals, but they quite like this new guy too. Um, and then eventually after a few weeks, Captain Janeway uh, gets told by the doctor that he's come up with a way to separate Tuvix into the component parts, into Tuvok and Neelix. And they go to Tuvix and they say, look, oh, it's good news. We can separate you out. And Tuvix says, but I don't want to be separated out. I really like who I am now. And Janeway, Captain Janeway now has this really tough decision to make, whether to separate out Tuvix into his component parts. Tuvix will be killed if this is the case, if she does this. Tuvix will die and Tuvok and Neelix will reappear. Question is, should she do it? And spoiler alert, in the episode, she does. She kills Tuvix, 
despite his protestations, he, he, he screams. He's like, he's in mortal, he's mortal fear. He says, I don't want to die. You are killing a man. And the doctor refuses to perform the procedure because he says it, it will be harming someone. And she does it herself. And she separates out Tuvix into Tuvok and Neelix. And here's the question. Should she do that? So I have to say, I went and downloaded the episode. We've talked about it for, for years and I'm really glad I got to watch it. I mean, there's some, some excellent philosophy going on. Um, there's the moral philosophical question that you've raised for us and then we'll definitely chat about that. Um, and then there's some really interesting personal identity questions that arise. Um, I will say the kind of Star Trek that I grew up watching was, I think it was The Next Generation with Picard, you know, um, and I must have been a pretty young kid. So that's the sort of Star Trek that rings out. I've watched... I tried to watch Wrath of Khan, the movie, um, which is supposedly the, the best of the movies, and I found it near too unwatchable. Um, this is kind of cheesy. I mean, it's like mid-90s. You know, it's sort of like, you know, not the best aspect ratio. And, you know, um, if you're a big fan of Orange is the New Black, uh, Red is Captain Janeway. So that was kind of cool. Um, all right. So here's my, my feeling about what's going on on a moral level. So let's assume for the sake of arguments that we have this, this new being that has been popped into existence. Okay. In the form of Tuvix. Um, and one way we might think about that being is like, like a child. So if you think about two parents um, who combine their DNA and have a child, you know, it has the, the attributes of both and is an own, its own independent being. And, and Tuvix makes this, uh, this, he makes this comparison. He said, I feel like Tuvok and Neelix are my parents. Mm, yeah. So let's imagine that um, you have a situation where after the child is born, um, the mother um, falls ill, you know, which is a common thing. She falls into a coma, let's say, you know, from, from, from giving birth. You know, sometimes mothers would, would die in childbirth and things like this. Let's assume she falls into a coma and the, husband um, similarly falls into a shock from the state of his wife. And, but the child is sort of living um, and let's say, um, you know, leading a normal life, um, you know, making friends, etc. And five years in, let's say, we've got this cute little kid who's now been adopted and, you know, living a normal life. And the doctors say, you know what, we've realized that um, the way to save the mother would be if we um, mince up this kid's organs. So we kill the kid, we mince up his organs, we you know, we can make a serum and the mother will, will, will be reanimated out of her coma. Um, and, you know, then the, the father will be resuscitated as well. We'd say, is it okay to kill the child to save the parents? And I think we might feel quite uncomfortable about that idea. We generally think that active killing is wrong, even if the benefit that you get out of it um, is twofold. In other words, you're killing one being to save two. Um, so that's sort of, you know, we, we talk about this a little bit in our trolley problem uh, episode about the difference between active and passive killing. So that makes me think that there's something wrong about killing Tuvix because you're killing Tuvix really to save these two beings, which would otherwise be dead. Um, so you're, you're going to try and the only way that you could save them or reanimate them is through killing. And if killing is you know, unwarranted, um, well, then you can't do it. So I wonder whether you're not using a deontological framework. So um, we talked about this in the trolley problem um, episode. If you haven't listened to it yet, we think you'll really enjoy it. It's our very first episode. It's called lockdown, a trolley problem. Um, 
but basically the idea is that there's two different kinds of ethical systems. So there's a deontological system or a Kantian system. Um, and that says that what you should respect is human dignity, right? You should respect a person, every person. And in this case, Tuvix is a person, right? Then on the other hand, you've got the utilitarians and the utilitarians say you must do what is best for society as a whole, taking everyone's um, interests into consideration. So there you might provide a utilitarian argument for um, separating two VIX out because as you say, you're saving two um, and killing one. Whereas the deontologist says, no, you can't, you can't ever sacrifice one. So I, is, is that what you're trying to get at, Mark? Are you trying to get at a deontological account? Yeah, so that seems like part of it, right? The utilitarian is going to have to, it's not quite a simple calc for the utilitarian because it's not a simple matter of saying, well, one life versus two lives. There's, you know, the goodness of these lives that's going to play a role. And as you point out, um, Tuvix happens to be um, greater than the sum of the parts. They specifically make that line in the episode, right? He is a better cook um, because he's possessed with the rationality and he, he actually makes better strategic decisions because he's aware of emotion. Um, now, the other little interesting element is that he falls in love and he falls in love with uh, Neelix's girlfriend. Um, and you get the strong sense from her that she'd like to pursue a relationship with him, although she feels some sense of grief, um, you know, from the death of Neelix and some hesitation. But there's a line where she says, you know, I think we can be friends and maybe more. Now, there's an interesting question as to whether she'd be, you know, having an affair or not, whether she, you know, is it, is it she moving, you know, she moving on the right way in the same sense that your lover dies and you find someone else? But where it gets complicated, of course, is that Tuvix isn't just a new being. He holds the memories of the prior two beings simultaneously. So it's not clear to me on the utilitarian calc what you ought to do because he might actually be better than the other two. Um, and, and then the other question is, is he the other two? Is he the other two plus, you know, or is he less than? Well, this is, this is the fascinating question. I mean, th there's lots of fascinating questions in this episode, but this is one of the most interesting is, um, is he one person or is he three? So is he Tuvok, Neelix, plus the combination, or is he just, is he just the combination? Um, and he keeps portraying himself throughout the episode as both. You know, he perfectly remembers everything that happened to both. He has all their memories and feels the same way about his previous partners. Um, uh, Tuvok has a wife. Um, on Vulcan and Neelix has his girlfriend and he still has feelings for both. Um, he's this combined being. So, you know, the utilitarian could argue if he wanted to save, um, um, I've forgotten his name now, uh, Tuvix. If he wanted to save Tuvix, the utilitarian could argue that actually there are three, there are three, there's equivalent value of three lives there, not just one. Um, but now let's, let's ask this question. Is, is, he, is he a continuation? of Tuvok and Neelix. And this is where um, a, very, a very cool philosopher, um, someone whose work I admire enormously, who passed away recently, um, Derek Parfit um, comes in. So Derek Parfit um, used a, a series of thought experiments to try and argue for the view that identity is not one-to-one. -one. In other words, it's not the case that you exist at a certain time, and if we look at a later time, there will only be one of you. Um, he also thought that identity is not, um, there's no golden thread. So he thought that there are degrees, it, it's not a hundred percent you tomorrow. It'll be some degree of you, some percentage of you. So he said, consider, consider the way you are now versus the way you were as a small child. How similar are you? 
Probably not very. Like you might have some of the memories of that child. And he said, that's very important. But in many ways, you're very different. You know, if I consider myself now versus my childhood self, I had no knowledge of philosophy. I hadn't watched Star Trek yet. I mean, if I consider myself at five years old, right? I hadn't written any science fiction books. Um, I was a very different person to the person I am now. You know, all the things that have happened to me in my life hadn't happened back then. Um, and I don't remember a lot of the things that happened to me as a five-year-old. Now compare me with Mark, right? So Mark and I have a lot in common. Okay. Mark and I both have a love of philosophy. We both participate in a pod podcast and a YouTube series called Brain in a Vat. Uh, we've both been part of very similar conversations on opposite ends of the table. Um, we, we're much more similar, the two of us, than I am with my five-year-old self. So Parfit says, it would be incorrect to say that I am just identical with my previous self, my childhood self. It would be much more accurate to say that there is some degree of continuity between my childhood self and me today. There's also a degree of continuity between Mark and me, which might even be greater, right? So he thinks that we continue through various people to varying degrees, and it shifts and changes and morphs throughout our lives. So his idea is that identity is not a one-to-one, -one, it's a one-to-many, and that it's not the percentage is not 100%. It's not a golden thread of 100% identity. It gets split and moves around between the people that you meet and how you influence them. You know, my mother, my grandmother influenced me enormously, but my grandmother died eight, nine years ago. Um, but I inherited her dishwasher and I perceive her personality in that dishwasher. It's totally my grandmother. The way, the way it runs, the way it doesn't run and it doesn't want to, it's totally my grandmother in that dishwasher. Parvid would say, there's a continuation of my grandmother in that dishwasher, right? A certain percentage and a continuation of her in me. So back to the Tuvok and Neelix case, there is a, they both continue in Tuvix, according to Parfit, because their memories continue in Parfit, and he's very similar to the two, not in Parfit, rather, in Tuvix. And Tuvix is very similar to the two. So, yeah, so Parfit would give you a case for arguing that, that Tuvix is a continuation of Tuvok and Neelix. So I like this analogy you've drawn with um, your, the relationship you have with your grandmother, because if your grandmother didn't exist, you would not exist right? And if five-year-old Jason um, died at the age of five, you wouldn't exist either. And so you might think that you owe your existence to these other beings, but that they are separate. And we very easily recognize the separateness of you and your grandmother. Um, we think of you and the baby as being the same, but we might be very mistaken in that front. And it might be better to think rather of the baby Jason as an ancestor. And you might think of it as these overlapping arcs, so, I mean, you know, our cells change every seven years. So we know that it is a different physical thing. You know, the size of that being is very different, the mental states. Um, but we might think, for example, the five-year-old baby is pretty similar from the five-year-old baby plus a day, you know, which is similar on and on and on. And so you've got these overlapping arcs. And at some point, you know, this being and this being don't overlap anymore. Um, but this being would not exist were it not for this being. So we've got this, as you said, this interesting thing going on with Tuvix, which is that Tuvix would not exist were it not for, for, for Neelix and Tuvac, um, and is so almost like a child of them, uh, and holds their memories in the way that you, as you say, hold the memories um, of your predecessor states. 
Now, what's of course quite cool about Parfit and Star Trek is that Parfit had his own thought experiment, um, which seems to have played a big role in the, the teleporter transporter. By the way, I know why you said it that way, because I think in different series, it refers to differently. We, I think in common parlance, call it a, a teleporter. They refer to it as the transporter. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that, that would be why, yes. So, yeah, so tell us a bit about what's uh, Parfit's famous teleportation experiment. Yeah, so Parfit, so what's really cool about Parfit is that he changed the landscape of um, identity, the identity account, right? So at the time, philosophers were debating, what is it that makes me, me? And before Parfit, they generally thought that what makes me who I am is my body, right? So I am my body because the body I had yesterday and the body I have today is the same. Now we know, as you say, that our cells gradually replace at different rates depending on the organ or different rates depending on the part of our bodies. Overall though, within seven years, all the cells in my body roughly have been entirely replaced by new ones. But there's continuity. And before Parfit, we thought that that's what makes me who I am, is my body. But what Parfit did was he came around and he said, okay, I want you to imagine a certain uh, experiment, right? You're gonna step into this machine called the teleporter. Did he call it the teleporter or did he call it the transporter? Teleporter. Okay, call it the teleporter, right. So, so you're going to step into this teleporter, right? And it's going to scan you, okay? And then there's going to be another pad where it's going to rebuild you. But it's going to, you're going to disappear from the first pad. You're going to disappear. And then you're going to reappear on the second pad and you're going to walk off, right? Is that you that walks away from the second pad? Is that you? And people say, well, yes, because the person who walks off on the other side has all my memories he has all my beliefs. He remembers stepping onto the first pad. He has my name or he believes his name is Jason, right? He seems exactly the same in every way, right? He looks the same, feels the same. And then Parfit says, okay, but if that's the case, if that is you that walks off on the other pad, it's not you in terms of your body because what we did on the first pad is we, we mulched the body, right? So we took this body and we just, we, we, we destroyed it, right? We turned it into just particles, into particles of energy. We just destroyed it. And then we created a new body on the other pad. So it can't be you who steps off on the second pad if what you think you are is your body. But our intuition is that it is you. And so it can't be your body that determines who you are. What makes you who you are is that the second person who steps off on that pad has memories of the first person. And so memory is what matters. He called it your psychological profile. And so Parfit said that what counts is your psychological profile or your mind. That's what determines who you are, it determines your identity. And Parfit kind of catches that even further. He says, imagine that there was a delay in the way that it worked. Um, so that what happens is the, the, the receiving pad prints out, let's say, you, and the other one stuck around in place A, and both of you could coexist for a while. And then let's say for legal reasons, we say, well, we can't have two Marks or two Jasons floating around. So we're going to now kill the first one. And so you could, after you teleport, you could watch the other version of you, the original version of you, um, get destroyed. Um, would you still think this was you? You know, in other words, do you have a, at some point in time, a you in two bodies, you know? Um, so as you point out, you've got the situation of, you know, where is the unis? Is it in the physicality? Uh, or is it in the mental states? And if it's in the mental states, you know, can you have these clones of you um, that would be you? 
Yeah, so that, that version of the thought experiment is meant to show that identity is one to many. It's not one to one. Because if we don't destroy the body on the original pad, then now there's two of you walking around. And I mean, in your, in your, in your version of it, there's just two of you for a second or two. But imagine, it, you know, it, the machine that destroys you just doesn't work, right? So now, and you step off of pad A and you step off of pad B. He'd say, Parfit would say, well, you were perfectly willing to accept that on pad B it was you before when pad A did destroy the body. And now when it doesn't destroy the body, now you're not sure which one it is. Well, he says, it's both, right? Who you are is both, right? So that means identity is one to many. And what's interesting, of course, about the Star Trek episode is that it's many to one. Um, we've kind of reversed it because we've taken these two separate distinct people who had no relationship with each other whatsoever. And they're kind of different kinds of space beings, right? I mean, the one's a Vulcan, the other one's some other kind of space freak. Yeah, a Talaxian, a Talaxian and a Vulcan. Yeah. Uh, so no relationship whatsoever. And now we've merged them into some kind of new being. They've also got a bit of orchid stuck in them, right? Um, that's the reason why they get merged. <laughs> Um, so there's hitherto undiscovered space species um, with the memories of these two prior beings. Um, and so, as you say, is this one new being or is it all three? You know, we only have one body. Um, I mean, what about if I were able to inject your memories into me? You know, would you live on in me? Let's say, um, you know, you then died after injecting your memories into me. Um, so um, there's another philosopher. Um, who doesn't accept this, right? He doesn't accept Parfit's view. He can't believe that identity is one to many. He says identity is always one to one. There is a fact of the matter, according to him, that, that one of these people on teleporter pad A or B, one of them is you and one of them is not. And one of them is 100% you and the other one is 100% not you. It's a copy of you, okay? And his, this guy's name is, is Nozick, okay? And Nozick has what's called the closest continuer account. So Nozick is trying to get rid of cases like this as well as the case where you inject your memories into me, right? So Nozick wants to say, no, what makes you who you are is that you are the closest continuer. So what he does is he says, there's a whole bunch of criteria that we take into account. One of them is your memories, but another one is your physical stuff, your body, okay? Um, and he thinks that um, the closest continuer will be the person who has the most, has as many of those criteria as possible to the highest degree. So he has kind of like a calculus and, and it pings out a result. Boom, that's who you are, right? So if you inject some of your memories into me, I'm not suddenly, you are not continuing through me to some degree, according to Nozick. You are still you and I'm still me. And, and that's it because you are the closest, the, the Mark body is the closest continuum of Mark and the Jason body is the, the closest continuum of Jason. And so we are distinct and one-to-one. -one. So he's, he's fought against the intuitions that Parfit has. So on the Nozickian account, would uh, Tuvix be um, a continuation of the other two? Or put it this way, would the other two live on in Tuvix? No, I don't think so. Um, but according to Parfit, yes. So here's a interesting rebutta, again, sourced from fiction. It's a film called The Butterfly Effect. Um, came out, I think, roughly uh, 20 years ago or so. Um, it's uh, the idea that there's a guy, he can, he can time travel, okay? And um, when he travels back, he carries the memories from the parallel worlds that he's in. And so once he's done this four times, he's sitting with four distinct memories of his parallel lives, all of which 
are him in some, let's say, physical continuity sense. Um, it ultimately drives him mad having to hold these sort of parallel states from these different worlds. So what's going on there? In other words, it's one, one being, um, different memories. Uh, is he four people? Is he one person? Okay, so let's think about it carefully. So on, on the Parfitian account, he is one continuer from multiple sources, right? Mm. So, so, but they all, they all continue in him, right? Um, according to the closest continuer account, so it depends. Did each of those people end in their respective uh, dimensions or, or, or did they continue and then he kind of shifts back into his own with, with their memories? I can't remember if, if how, how he sort of moves from state to state, but um, I mean, you could have, let's say, the quantum leap, you know, the other sort of series with someone sort of inhabiting one psyche and jumping other physical bodies thing. So, you know, in other words, there's no death, there's just kind of movement. Or we could imagine that the person dies in parallel world A, um, you know, leads a full life, gets reborn into their own physical body again, but in parallel world B, um, has all the memories from the first world, grows up as a child, becomes an adult, you know, has now two sets of memories when they die and this keeps going on, you know. Um, yeah, I think, you, you know, Nozick loves what's called the golden thread, right? So he loves the idea of the one-to-one. He's not going to accept it. He's not going to accept it. But Parfit will. I think Parfit will say, uh, well, well, will Parfit say there's one person or multiple? I think what's interesting about uh, what Parfit's view in, implies is that to say there is one person is a bizarre thing to say because one person means kind of like causally um, insulated from other people, right? And on his view, you're not. You, you, bits of you are bleeding off into other people and vice versa as you interact and influence each other and take on each other's traits. You know, there's something called the chameleon effect, which is that when two people talk, if they like each other, they start mimicking each other. Um, unconsciously, they mimic each other's body language. They also mimic each other's um, facial expressions, their verbal uh, cues, and some of the, and their beliefs. Right? They take on each other's beliefs. If you like someone, you start to believe similar things. Um, in Parfit's sense, you, the two of you really are merging. Right? You you like becoming one thing. But to say it's one thing would be wrong because. The two of you are also, you know, interacting with lots of other people and have lots of other people you've interacted with in the past. So Parfit's view is kind of like this big mess, right, of causal chains between people with degrees of identity floating around between everyone in this big web of identity. Yeah, I mean, I think um, Parfit was sort of uh, told that his account was quite Buddhist in some ways, right, Uh, which he found perplexing. Um, he said, oh, well, if it turns out to be the case, so, you know, so be it, I suppose. There's a kind of pantheism going on, right? That there is only this, this one entity. I mean, this is the sort of stuff you saw in like, you know, bad 90s um, sort of uh, woo new age books that like, you know, we're all one man, you know, like the Neil Donald Walsh line. And in some level, he's sort of saying that, right? Like, well, we've got all these, you've got the society of people that are overlapping with each other. And there's this sort of big grand entity that is all of us together. Yeah. And, and Mark will probably know that I'm very sympathetic towards pantheism um, because I do buy into this Parfitian account 
of um, of this web of identities. Um, I also think what's very interesting is that at the end of uh, Parfit's first book, what's the name of his first book, Mark? Reasons and Persons. Reasons and Persons. Yes, that's right. Fantastic book. It's not very long and so good. I, I really recommend you read it. Um, at the end of Reasons and Persons, um, he gives an account of how to understand ethics. And um, what he does is he roots his ethics in this interdependent identity account. Um, and what he says is, it would make no sense to harm another person, given that there isn't really a firm distinction between you and that other person. He kind of grounds the legitimacy of things like utilitarianism and Kantianism or deontology in the idea that it is rational not to want to harm other people, or it is irrational to want to harm other people, because when you really think about it, they aren't other people. They're all some percentage of you. Yeah, I mean, so you're right to talk about, you know, Parfit's book as this like huge change in philosophy, right? I mean, it's incredibly influential. So the book came out in, I think it's 84. Um, and he didn't write another book up until um, uh, What Does It All Mean, which came out a couple of years ago, very shortly before he died, um, which I think took, it was about 25 years of work. And what's interesting about What Does It All Mean is that it's multiple volumes. Um, so it's not a short work, but he writes very crisply. I mean, Parfit has an incredibly sparse style and filled with all sorts of interesting thought experiments. And he, as you say, takes off from that last chapter of, well, how do we develop uh, a moral theory? And he thinks that, well, there's been these three paths to climb a mountain. So there's utilitarianism on the one hand, which we've talked about, this idea of maximizing the good. Um, Kantianism, this idea that there are rights. Um, and contractarianism, the idea that you know, what we want in a society is agreement. And he thinks that these are these three paths of climbing the mountain to get to what is the right action. And he thinks they can all be cashed out in terms of each other. And so he creates this new grand moral theory. Um, and so the first volume of the book is that. The second volume is critiques of it from a whole bunch of his peers who've been circulating this draft to for years. And the third volume is his responses to the critiques. Um, and it's probably one of those books that will have ramifications for many years to come as people are still digesting it. Yeah, so, you know, something which we mentioned in our previous episode when we um, interviewed Liz Jackson um, is that philosophers love disagreement, not just with other people's positions, but with their own. So one of the greatest, uh, one of the greatest compliments that you can pay to a philosopher is to provide an objection to their view. Um, because what it does is it says, I've taken your view seriously, I have read it, I have thought about it, and here's what I think is wrong with it. And we as philosophers love that. And it's just so cool that Parfit spent an entire volume of his work dedicated to objections to his own view, um, without even responding to them in that volume. <laughs> just in the next volume, he responded to them. I mean, he really gave those objections room and space. Um, by the way, there's something else very interesting about uh, Derek Parfit, which is that he had something called aphantasia, um, which means that he wasn't able to imagine things visually. Um, when he tried to imagine the world, he couldn't think about it visually. Um, I have um, not as bad aphantasia as Parfit did, but I have some aphantasia. Um, and I think certain types of philosophers think very differently to a lot of people, and that allows them to come up with very weird ways of conceiving of the world. And if you think about it, his way of thinking about identity is almost very, it's very visual. 
And even though he wouldn't have thought about it visually, you can kind of imagine it as this web of interconnections. Um, it's, quite a, it's quite a beautiful way of thinking of the world. Yeah, so I gather, you know, Parfit was an unusual person in a lot of ways. He got married quite late in life um, and sort of in a kind of haphazard kind of manner. And someone recounts it calling him up and, you know, sort of exchanging pleasantries and saying, you know, oh, and, you know, how's your wife doing? And he was sort of affronted. He said, why would you ask that? And they said, well, Derek, that's what people do. <laughs> you know, apparently he used to have, uh, he was obsessed with work. So he would have exactly the same thing to eat every single day. Um, and he would have his coffee cold. So he had instant coffee with cold water because it was, it was quicker to make it that way. And I think he ate a kind of totally vegan diet. He fell ill at one stage. Um, and all he could say to the doctors was, I, I, need, I need to get back to the work. You know, so he was an incredibly driven guy. And it's interesting notion, as you say, about, you know, a, a lot of, you know, philosophers are, are abnormal. Um, you know, they have strange ways of looking at the world, um, probably very kooky to spend time with. Apparently also an incredibly giving guy. So for someone who wrote two books, um, the other thing that he would do is people would submit drafts to him of their books. And often his comments were longer than the books themselves. Um, oh. So it was sort of seen as just this, this incredibly generous colleague. Um, so yeah, there's, there's some really fantastic articles, which I'll stick in the description about his life, but, uh, I want to, I want to move on a little bit from this and return to, um, the idea we were talking about earlier, which is this relationship between philosophy and fiction. And so Jason, your first novel that you wrote, the solace pool, um, plays with one of these ideas, which is this, this idea that you could be, um, 3d printed. So instead of having to go to university and go and study a whole bunch of things, instead you could go um, to the 3D printing shop, um, get yourself shredded, and then reprinted with the memories of having um, studied uh, or the memories of having eaten a, a wonderful meal or having traveled to, um, you know, to distant lands. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how you use this sort of philosophical idea in your book and what other things come out in the book? Yeah, so um, basically the idea was that you, just like in Star Trek, you could be moved from pad to pad on the teleporter. Um, in my book, it's just called a 3D printer instead of a teleporter. Um, and 3D printers, I wrote the book about eight years ago, and 3D printers are coming to the point now where we are printing human tissue. Um, and back then we weren't yet, but I was predicting that it would happen and it is happening now. So I'm just patting myself on the back a little bit. Um, but the idea was that when you re what happens is you scan yourself, it pulps you and then it prints you, right? And when it prints you again, you don't have to be printed in the same place. And as you say, you don't have to be printed with the same properties. You could be changed in some way. So your brain holds your memories. So if you just reprint your brain in a different way, you'll be reprinted with different memories. And as you say, you could be reprinted with the memories of someone who studied a PhD in something, right? So you could be reprinted already having learned material. You don't have to eat a meal. You can just reprint yourself with that meal already in your stomach. You don't have to go on holiday. You can just reprint yourself with the, hot, the memories of the holiday in your mind. Um, and basically the problem, what, what, what arises from this is that people start to realize that the world in which they live is deeply inauthentic. So, um, the world in which they live isn't, or the memories that they have are not memories of things that they did. They memories of someone like them doing it. So the programming, what it does is when it prints your brain, remembering a PhD, 
your brain will have supposed memories, faux memories of you having studied a PhD for years and years and gaining all this knowledge. Or it will reprint you with the memories of being on a holiday, but that holiday never happened, right? And that PhD never happened. So in this world, what starts to happen is that everyone starts to value authenticity more than anything else. They want to really go on holiday, but holidays are now so expensive because who has time for holiday when everyone's just getting reprinted with the holiday in their minds? You know, there's no B&Bs anymore. There's no, there's no flights anymore. There's no, you know, because you would just be reprinted somewhere else or reprinted with the memories. So what happens is that people start to really crave authenticity. And I'm wondering whether that's not happening already in our lockdown state today with COVID. Um, is that we're kind of having to experience the world through a screen, through a computer screen or through a cell phone screen. And look at memories of this previous world that we had, right? There's no travelogues anymore, right? You can't, you can't watch a live person flying on a plane today, going to a country and experiencing Paris with the Eiffel Tower and beautiful people walking around. It's not going to happen. You're going to have to experience some, some kind of representation of it, a memory of it. We can't really have experiences anymore. And I'm wondering whether it's not a similar problem. Yeah, I mean, to give you an idea of, you know, what I was doing before we started recording this episode was watching a dating show, which was a recreation of a kind of, you know, cheesy 90s thing. Um, and it was a bit of a fundraiser. And the way the dates were done was that people sat behind their screens and they put on virtual backgrounds of all these exotic locations. And they had a, you know, a date under the Eiffel Tower or, a, you know, a date in a, you know, on a beachfront. And there's this sort of pretend game, as you say, to sort of say, well, let's imagine that we're in this place. Um, and all of us are kind of having to do a giant pretend. Um, and I assume we're doing it because we say, well, we will get back to reality post COVID, you know, um, and we can you know, see this as a temporary hiatus. Um, and it would be interesting. And we might say we, we're okay with escaping into a fantasy world um, temporarily. Um, and what's interesting, of course, is if it wasn't so temporary, if you had to, you know, jump into, we talk about, um, Nozick's experience machine a bit with our episode with Aaron Fasser um, and whether that would be, you know, a, a rational choice, you know, to, to escape reality permanently and have all these experiences, even if they weren't authentic. Yeah. It, it kind of feels like now we have to jump into an experience machine every day in order to live life at all. Like imagine you switched off all your electronics right now and decided for the next month, I'm not going to switch on electronics. And imagine you live alone. You're not going to have any interaction with the world whatsoever, or at least with the living world. Um, you'll just have interactions with inanimate objects or maybe a pet, but you're not going to have any interaction. Um, it's kind of like we are forced into an experience machine. By the way, the experience machine, if you haven't watched our episode with Aaron, which we recommend, he's fantastic on that episode. Um, it's, it's called The Value of Life. Anyway, so um, the way the experience machine works is that you plug into this machine, you step into a new plug-in, and the machine um, makes you forget that you've plugged into the machine, and the machine will give you the best possible experiences that you can imagine, right? So it's programmed to make you as happy as possible and experience as much pleasure as possible. And Nozick asks the question, if you had the choice, would you step into the experience machine for the rest of your life? And he thinks that most people would say no. And that is meant to illustrate how important authenticity is. Um, 
that our authentic lives outside the experience machine, even though they're not as pleasurable, are lives that we would prefer to lead. Um, and I wonder whether we're all not trying to make this decision going forward, even if it's not today, maybe it's in a month, maybe it's in two months, but at what point do we step out of the experience machine of our computer screens and our insulated homes and take the risk of being in a world that's not as pleasurable or, or as safe, um, but is authentic and real? Yeah, I mean, so the sort of, you know, probably the most well-known piece of fiction um, that generates out of this idea is The Matrix, right? And, you know, there's this sort of idea that, well, you know, steak tastes really good in the matrix. Um, and, you know, down here in reality, we have to fight off all these, uh, you know, vicious robots and eat this gruel. Um, are we sure we want to do that? You know, what about the comforts of, you know, of things being uh, not so real? Um, so, yeah, we might, we might not want to go and confront reality out there. Um, I mean, it's, as you say, we're sort of um, in some simulacrum of reality, but, you know, we... Well, <laughs> unless you're Elon Musk, you don't think we're in a simulation right now. <laughs> yeah, so Elon Musk thinks we are in a simulation right now. He thinks it's statistically very probable. Um, what is Elon Musk's argument? It's basically that, um, I, I, I'm actually not sure. Do you know, Mark? Yeah, it sounds like one of these bootstrappy arguments, which is you sort of say, well, um, it seems like you could have a supercomputer powerful enough that could generate um, simulations um and so if you think about how many different worlds there could possibly be one of those worlds would have a supercomputer fast enough to do it um and so there's some likelihood that we're in it um i mean mm. yeah i mean things have gotten pretty weird over the last couple of years i mean you know donald trump's president right you know like uh, the simpsons did an episode it's, about it's covid 10 years ago so yeah you know things are glitching out pretty hard i've seen that black cat kind of phase in and out of reality a few times <laughs> I mean, if you look at look at Jason's couch, are you sure that's the same cat that started this episode? I'm not so sure. <laughs> His name is Forty Six. Um, so yeah, I I I I think that um, I think so. So part uh, not Parfit, um Elon Musk. What he says is that um, it's not just that these computers could simulate one world, but they could simulate billions, right? So if you have a look at all the possible worlds there could be, there's billions and billions, trillions of possible simulated worlds, but there's only one real world. So what, is, what are the chances that you're in the real world and not in the simulated world? He'd say it's one in billions. I think it's something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, this is a guy who like, you know, named his son after, you know, um, what, like a, a string of characters. 12 or something. Or... It's like... <laughs> X uh, A E, which is A I in Elvish, you know the A and the E are merged together like ether, uh, and then it's like A twelve because that's him and Grimes's like favorite airplane. I mean, look, I get it. I mean, your kid's gonna get the shit knocked out of them at school for a while, but you know, you know that's that's kind of Elon grew up. Elon South African, um, you know, I think had a hard time, and he's like, I feel like my kids, you know, he's gonna have a really easy time in life, you know, having a bit in their dad. So let me make it hard for him, you know. <laughs> So, so Mark, uh, back to the original question: Would you uh, chop up Tuvix to generate Neelix and Tuvok, or would you keep Tuvix alive? I, I wouldn't kill him. I think he is an independent being, um, and I think you would be killing him uh, to resuscitate other beings. Um, and I think that would be morally impermissible. Um, and it's not clear, you know, certainly that's on the Kantian account, but I don't think it's clear on the utilitarian account either. Um, 
that you'd be doing the right thing, that you'd be maximizing the good. So I think when when Janeway kills him, she does something um, something pretty wrong. She might be doing something wrong and good at the same time, though, because what happens, of course, is that you know um, Neelix and Tuvac pop back into existence, and they're quite happy to be alive, you know. And um, and part of the sense that you get in the episode is that um, Neelix's partner. Um, is in this emotional turmoil about it. And you get the sense that that's what tips over Janeway's decision. And she says, you know, I, I miss Neelix so much. Um, and in a way, there's this motivation of saying, well, these two lovers have been separated by this scientific accident. You know, shouldn't we try and re restore the status quo ante? Um, you know, and, you know, that's how it sort of goes down. So it's sort of almost like, well, we popped this character into existence. Um, they had a good run of it. You know, they had two weeks. Um, you know, um, it's better for them to have been born in some ways than for them to have died. That's an episode we, we really must get onto. Um, David Benatar wrote the book, uh, Better Never to Have Been, Why It's Wrong to Bring New Life into the World. And uh, has written a further book um, on uh, the human predicament as to whether it's better to have been born at all um, and what the quality of our life is like. So that's something I'd like to touch on um, soon. Well, I'm really glad you raised that because I was actually about to bring up Benatar's antinatalism. So Benatar says it's better not to have been born. Um, it is wrong, morally wrong, to bring new children into the world. And I wonder whether if we don't insert antinatalism into this question, whether it is doubly wrong to kill Tuvix, right, and separate him out into these two. Because um, when you do so, you are bringing two beings into the world. And according to Benatar, it is always wrong to do so. Yeah, it's an interesting point as to what is going on when we, when we kill Tuvix. Are we bringing new beings into the world? You know, what's the sort of state of those beings? Were they dead? Are they now, you know, reborn? Are they like, you know, Lazarus risen? Um, were they in some state of suspended animation inside of Tuvix and are they released? So, and, and do those things play a role in our decision? Are they now totally new beings? I mean, so Jason, you're, we've talked quite a lot about personal identity and you have some pretty interesting views on it. So um, Jason doesn't drink. And one of the reasons, well, you, you tell our listeners why you don't drink. Yeah, okay. So I, I, I don't drink uh, primarily because I think that when you drink, you die. Okay, so um, I'm a Parfitian. So I believe that who you are um, is your psychological um, state. It's your, it's your psychological um, profile, um, which is basically a combination of all of your memories together with um, certain habits that you have, beliefs that you have, desires that you have. But when you drink, especially if you drink a lot, um, a lot of that changes. Uh, so a lot of people drink because it, it numbs their memories. So your memories become fewer. And in addition to that, um, your proclivities change. So your desires change, your beliefs change. Um, suddenly the world looks much better maybe. Um, and, you know, you might not answer questions the same way um, if you were asked them when you drunk or not drunk. Um, so on my account, on Parfit's account, on the account that I follow, um, when you drink, you literally die, right? You no longer exist. Now, when you sober up, the question is, do you then pop back into existence? And I don't think you do because I can't think of anything else in existence that exists at a certain time then ceases to exist and then pops back into existence. It wouldn't make sense, right? There's no continuity there. So I think what happens when you drink is that you, cease, you, you exist before the drink, then you drink and you die, right? You cease to exist and someone else replaces you, 
your drunk, this drunk person replaces you who has some of your memories. He's like a bad copy of you. Right. And then eventually when he sobers up, he dies as well because he changes and another person who's very similar, but not the same as who you were before all of this takes your place. So there's you, there's a bad copy of you who then dies as well. And a new copy who's more similar to you than the first one, but isn't who you are takes over. So when I think when you, there's all sorts of death happening every time you drink. So, so I, I, I'm the only one of my friends who doesn't drink. They all drink. But when I watch them drink, I always say to them, it was really nice knowing you. <laughs> so a couple of thoughts. The one is um, you refer to the bad copy. And I think some people want that bad copy to do fun things, right? So, you know, they get up to all sorts of mischief after they've had a few drinks. There's the sort of um, Mr. Hyde comes out, you know, has uh, sex with strangers and dances on, you know, um, on tabletops, you know, um, and then dies. And then, uh, you know, Dr. Jekyll is back. Um, and, but they have the memories of Mr. Hyde and they quite like that. Um, now Jason is sort of fortunate enough to be the kind of person who doesn't need to drink to lead a wild lifestyle. <laughs> but well, not, him, not under lockdown under lockdown. There's absolutely nothing wild happening in my life. Yeah. We're all, we're all Dr. Jekyll's now. <laughs> um, but here's going to be the sort of objection, which is people will say, but hold on, what happens if I just go to sleep? You know, um, is that the same as being drunk? You know, while I'm asleep, you know, I don't have my mental states. Um, you know, am I dying every time I go to bed? I think, I think uh, there's two ways of answering the question. The one's yes and the one's no. <laughs> right? but, and there might be reasons to argue for both. So um, we might say you are still the same person because you could be woken. And seconds after waking, you would answer very similar questions or, or you'd, ask, you'd answer the same questions that you would have answered before you went to sleep in the same way. So let's say you're asked, what is your name? You'll say, my name is Jason. Uh, if you're asked, you know, how do you feel about life generally? You probably say I'm a bit grumpy because I was woken up, but otherwise I feel the same way. Um, but the drunk person wouldn't, right? So the drunk person would be quite different. Uh, the drunk person would say, uh, no, actually like, you know, life isn't as bad as I thought it was um, because, because the alcohol has really helped me, you know, see life isn't so bad. Um, I feel, I feel jovial and fantastic now. Um, so, you know, I, I think there is a reason for, for arguing that, you are still you when you go to sleep, but you're not you when, you when you drink. On the other hand, if you really want to push that and say, no, it's not that I want you to be the same in a few seconds after you fall, wake up, but I want you to be the same when you're asleep. Well, then no, I'm not the same person. Then I would die when I go to sleep. And I mean, Mark knows this. I, I, I hate going to sleep. Um, and I stay up very late every night. I stay up until about 5 or 6 a.m. And I've always done that. And part of the reason why is I just... I do think that when I go to sleep in an important way, in an important sense, I die. So, I mean, there's something interesting about the account, which is that in a lot of ways you've devalued death. So, I mean, you think that, you know, child Jason is dead, right? Um, at some point that arc stopped overlapping with you and ceased to exist. All right. And, you know, if you thought, well, maybe I'm dying every time I you know, have too many beers um, or go to sleep, uh, I'm dying. Um, and that might sound very grim, but it also might make you think that, well, maybe death isn't that bad. If I've died so many times before that when I have a physical death, um, that's just one of many. So there's a, a fantastic um, web, web comic series called Existential Comics. Um, Existential Comics has all sorts of um, witty cases with famous philosophers, but the very, very first one is... Um, a lot about what we've discussed today, 
which starts with Parfit's um, teleportation machine and ends with someone who sees himself as having lived many lives. Um, and when he dies, you know, he embraces his death because he says, well, I've died hundreds of times before. I guess this is the last time. Yeah, I mean, it is a very, again, a Buddhist idea. Um, you know, the Buddhists don't believe in a continuation of a self. They also believe that death is inevitable and is happening to us all the time. And if you really think about it, there is no self at all, according to the Buddhist. Um, it's a very Buddhist idea, this idea of dying all the time. But I understand your, your objection. I mean, your objection is, well, if death happens all the time, then it's not that bad. Then there's no reason why you shouldn't drink, right? Um, well, I mean, so, so here's an interesting, so, so a friend of mine said, I would really love to see what happens if you were to take drugs. What, what would happen? Like what, so I've never taken any drugs. And the reason why is because I do want to live, right? So he said, I, I want to see what you would be like on, on drugs. So I said to him, but it wouldn't be me on the drugs, right? It would be someone else. It's not me. So when you say death's not that bad, I mean, I might even say, yes, death's not that bad, but I, the, I do want to continue living, right? I do want to experience the world longer than my next drink or my next pull. I want to experience the world. Um, and there is some value to that. It might not be an overriding value for a lot of people. I mean, some people for them, uh, they might want a world, their interest might be such that they want a world where there are a plethora of beings doing all sorts of interesting things, even if that plethora of beings is not them, right? So that might be what they want, in which case they should drink and take drugs and experience lots of things and let their subsequent selves do lots of things. Um, but that's just not my interest. I, I don't want other people to experience the world. I want to experience the world. <laughs> I mean, we sort of had this, this chat a while ago. I said to you, imagine that I could give you uh, a drug which would put you um which would create a state where you would be or the being that popped out would be very very creative very very talented and wrote the great south african novel um would you take it and the answer would be no because it wouldn't be me you wouldn't have written the novel right um, yeah it would be someone else it would be this person with the drug yeah yeah and and you would feel like a fraud in other words if the novel came out in your name you'd say well that wasn't really me now, of course, it's interesting if we, you know, how much you could be altered. I mean, let's say, for example, you decided to go off to a Buddhist retreat um, where you didn't speak to anyone for a year, you know, silent vows and all this sort of stuff, and it put you into a different mental state of affairs. And in this space, you did write the great South African novel, you know, um, but that's, that state of mind was so different from ordinary Jason. You know, you might say, well, I, I wrote it in this other way, and I'm not sure if I can really take ownership of that novel. You do get writers who, who talk about automatic writing where they say, you know, the novel just flowed out of me. I was just taking notes. Um, you know, and you have that in, in the realm of fiction and you have it again with someone like Neil Donald Walsh who wrote the conversation with God series saying he was just dictating what God told him, right? You know, um, but you have other people that just say, well, you know, this, this vision came upon me and I had to write and I wrote furiously for two weeks and out came the thing, you know, and whether it is theirs or whether they were just a vessel. Um, now, you might think, let's say you were just a vessel, um, that you still played some sort of um, continuity in the role, and maybe you can't take ownership of it, but you could still feel some level of connection to it. So, um, I don't know if you know William Gibson. He wrote uh, a novel called Neuromancer, 
Um, and it was kind of a seminal novel. I think it was in the eighties or the nineties or late eighties, early nineties about, um, it's a cyberpunk novel. So, um, cyberpunk is this genre where kind of technology has taken over. Um, it's very dystopian and, uh, there's a lot of corruption, um, and a lot of, uh, kind of, f um, free range, uh, capitalism in a way that's seen as very negative. Okay. Anyway, so you wrote this novel and it went on to sell millions and millions of copies. And I read, the last time I read the novel, I've read it a few times because I can never finish it. Um, it's one of the greats, but I can just never finish it. So I've tried to read it a few times. And the last time I read it, I read his introduction. And he talks about how it has sold millions of copies. And every few months or years, he has a look at how it's done, where it's traveled, the languages that it's been translated into, the, the, the things people are saying about it, the reviews it has garnered. And he feels about it like it's his child but he doesn't feel like it's his anymore. He feels like it was his. It then separated from him and went out into the world. And now it's not his anymore. It's his in some genetic sense, right? So the genesis of it is in him or was in him, his previous self at that time, but it's not his now anymore. And I feel very similarly about my work. Um, I mean, The Solace Pool was written eight years ago and when I look at the solace pill today and I read it, I can see traces of my current writing in it, but it really does feel like it could be written by someone else. Um, and in an important sense, it doesn't feel like mine anymore. Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about your creative works, as you say, is that you might birth them into the world and that they gain an in, in independent existence and that people will talk about the book um, sometimes without knowing who the author is. I mean, here's a really funny kind of um, account of it. Um, Stephen King put out a tweet saying, listen, everybody, you know, um, you're making all these comparisons with COVID and the stand, but I'm telling you right now that, you know, that's a totally unfair comparison. Um, you know, things were much, much worse under the stand. And one of the responses was, who the hell are you to make that comparison? <laughs> So there was a true death of the author for that reader who, you know, was aware of the stand, but not aware of Stephen King's relationship to the stand. <laughs> yeah. The guy was like, you obviously haven't read it. <laughs> yeah. So, so here's the question is Stephen right? Stephen King. I want to call him Stephen. I mean, as if I know him, um, I love Stephen King, by the way, he is literally my favorite author. And I don't mean that literally metaphorically. I mean that literally, literally, I love Stephen King's work. Um, so, so is Stephen King correct then in saying, no, but I wrote it? Or is it in some important sense, is it true to say, no, there was a very different person back then who wrote it, and maybe I don't even remember all of it. Some people come up to me and quote parts of my book, and I don't even recognize the, <laughs> the quote. So in some sense, they know the book better than I do, right? Yeah, and, and in, this is a really real case for King. So he had um, quite a bad cocaine problem. He says he has no recollection of ever writing the book Cujo. He just sort of took a lot of cocaine and these books poured out of him. And he says, okay, well, I guess it's there. I don't remember doing that. You know, so, um, and there's this other kind of, let's say, postmodern account of the death of the author where they go, hold on, you may have written the book, but that doesn't give you any extra authority in you know, talking about what it means. Um, yeah, they talk about reader theory, right? So reader theory says that the meaning of the book is constituted by the reader, the very meaning of the book. And if the author comes around and tells you what the book's about, and it disagrees from, with what the reader believes, the author is wrong. The reader is right. 
Well, Jason, I want to say thank you for a delightful conversation as always. I mean, you've been the perfect person to chat to for this episode, being a philosopher and a sci-fi writer. And, you know, we've talked quite a lot about this relationship between the two fields and how they've sort of cross-influenced each other. Um, so I, I look forward to talking about some of your other books in the future. Head On, which, um, you know, those of you watching on YouTube, um, tells a fantastical tale about a, a state run on some semi-utilitarian principles and how badly things go. So we'll have to talk about that um, sometime soon.